0: It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Today's show presented by Mattress Man, mattressmanstores.com, and by Patrons. They became patrons and they get exclusive content like we did our live stream last night. That was a lot of fun, as always. Uh patrons like David, Dan, Josh, Christian, Stephanie, Casey, Mary, Ted, Elizabeth, Kathleen, Matt, and Jason, they all became patrons. You can as well go to the Pete There's a link at the top of the page there uh, to become a patron. Uh, also remember, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, You can do that by going to the Also, if you're listening right now on a smartphone or something, there's usually a button right there. You can just click subscribe, and then you're subscribed, and you never have to worry, oh my gosh, I forgot to download today's episode. See how that works? Um, All right. So is North Carolina already at herd immunity? Joining me now is John Sanders. He is the research editor and senior fellow of regulatory studies at the John Locke Foundation, and uh, welcome back to the show. John, how are you?
1: Pete, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again.
0: Uh, absolutely. So are you uh, you running around the streets maskless in celebration? Did, well, I guess I guess I should ask, did your life actually really change after the lifting of the governor's orders? Because or, you strike me as a person that probably didn't wear the mask a whole heck of a lot.
1: I didn't change my behavior very much. <laughs> but I got to say, it's nice to walk into a place and not worry about Possibly being accosted
0: for not wearing one. Did, did that happen to you yeah. at all while you were while, while the mask mandate was in place?
1: Um, only on a couple of occasions, mm. and I didn't give I didn't give uh, businesses grief. Um, they they were being you know told what what they had to do. Um, I was more worried about about you know other individuals. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I, I wore just to reduce hassle as well i didn't want you know people were obviously terrified businesses uh you know trying to comply with all of the rules and not anger all of their customers and stuff so yeah i was i go along get along you know that's me that's what they say about me
1: (laughs) well i tried to avoid the places that i knew that were going to require it yeah uh, because i i think it's foolishness
0: yeah and, I I, and kinda, I have
1: good reason for thinking
0: that. Yeah, I kind of picked up on that in the course of the last year in our discussions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right. So I haven't actually talked to you since the, since the mandate got lifted, I don't think. Yeah. So uh, were you surprised? Let's rewind. Were you surprised at all when Governor Cooper lifted all of these restrictions as he did just after the CDC said, hey, you know what? Uh, new science is out and uh, you don't have to wear masks if you're vaccinated. Were you surprised?
1: I was surprised, but I guarantee you, I wasn't as surprised as Cooper was.
0: <laughs> oh, I say that.
1: Because the day before he lifted almost all of the, the restrictions, he was asked about the CDC study. And this was, uh, he was touring a, um, a vaccine distribution site or something like that. And he was asked about it. And he basically said, look, um, We have an indoor mask mandate in place, and we're not planning to lift it until we we get to our two-thirds vaccinated, and and that might not happen until um, end of July um, if if things go well. So, I mean, he was making it sound less than 24 hours before he lifted almost everything. He was making it sound as if it would be a real accomplishment if we were able to do it by the end of July.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And we did look at that because I mean, so got I, I
1: wonder what the phone conversation that he got from the White House <laughs> that that evening or afternoon or whatever. I wonder what the content of that was like.
0: Well, and I also wonder, because remember, the, the CDC director w- like went before Congress defending all of their restrictions after she had already issued the guidance to... Uh, to send down to the governors and, and health departments and stuff that, that said, you can lift the mandates. People don't need masks if they've been vaccinated. And uh, she like went and told and, and, you know, did not let on that she had issued this guidance. It was, you know, being reviewed and they were scrubbing all their websites and all that. But it, before it all went live, uh, she had gone to, to the Senate and, and defended this. And like, this is one of the things, and we've talked about this over the last year, it's one of the things that really just drives me nuts is watching this and, and uh, the way in which the elected officials and health and health officials uh, seem to just um, lie, for lack of a better term, tell things that aren't necessarily the complete truth in order to advance a particular agenda or get an outcome. I mean, it goes all the way back to the beginning with the masks, right, where they said, don't wear masks. And then they said, wear yes. masks and They're like, well, we had to lie because we had to make sure that there was enough masks for medical professionals. But OK, if that was the if, if you had to do that, well, you don't get to keep giving advice then after that, because I, I can't trust you.
1: No, and you're right about that. It, uh, that's the real issue behind it all is they do that enough, enough times that people are not going to trust anything that they say. It's it's crying wolf essentially, but it's crying wolf about something that's really really important. Yeah, you know, like wolves, I guess. But um,
0: <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, that's a reason In why that, that comes. Yeah, where it comes, yeah. why it came to be a saying, right?
1: Right, right. But but yes, they change they change their guidance. They change it again. Um, you get mixed messages. You get um, any rational thinking individual w- would get this list of things that you can and can't do. Why are you safe when you're standing up, when you're sitting down in the restaurant, but when you're standing up, you're in danger? Uh, Any of that sort of stuff just makes you wonder what's really going on.
0: Yeah, right. And I'm not a conspiracy theory kind of guy. I'm more Occam's razor, the obvious explanation that, you know, is usually the correct uh, explanation. Um, But when I see like another one is the messaging on the vaccines, which was, hey, you get the vaccine, make sure you get the vaccine and then you get it and oh by the way you know life isn't going to change for you (laughs) like well that's a terrible way to sell a vaccine to people
1: i was astounded when they came out with that okay so yeah you got your max your vaccine vaccine why can't i say it you got your vaccine but now you, you still have to wear a mask well i thought you said the vaccine worked right wasn't that the whole point isn't that why you get a vaccine
0: i thought so i thought like like that's the word it's literally the word right it's supposed to protect you and then uh and even now i i just saw who was it oh, it was the i think it was the reporter guy for n c policy watch uh Joe Killian. I think that was him. He and, he and he sends out this virtue signaling tweet that has absolutely you know, no power because it's talking about he and the intern with him, uh, with his lefty organization. They're the only ones wearing a mask in some committee hearing like, dude, you don't need to wear the mask if you got the vaccines. And if everyone else has the vaccines, right, then that's uh, th- th- there's very little risk, so your virtue signaling yeah. doesn't really work anymore. And I almost wonder if that's really what is hamstringing a lot of people in, you know, getting back to normal is they kind of liked the ability or this this issue that they had to to lord over people like I care about my fellow human beings more than you do I wear the mask <laughs> right or uh I have the vaccine there's all like that was a brief window of virtue signaling where people raced out to get the vaccines first and they were like I care more than you do you know and I don't know it's like they, <laughs> they don't want to give it up they don't want to give it up it's been too long it's been a year
1: uh, that's as good a theory as, as any I really don't you
0: have a, yeah we don't want to explore we'll plumb the depths of that one yeah I just I'm trying to imagine the psychology behind it and I just I cannot um it's kind of like this I should not even make this I should not even well all right I'll go ahead and do it it's kind of like <laughs> mass shootings like we don't understand what would possess somebody to do something like that, and so we search in vain for answers, but we can't contemplate it because it's just insanity, you know? I know how people are going to say, oh, he's comparing mass shooters. To... I'm not comparing mass shooters to virtue signaling mask wearers. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying the psychology there is pretty fascinating to me. Um, but even me, like, I'm not even a big mask proponent. I, like I said, I would just wear them you know to make businesses feel better or other people like okay you're obviously terrified I'll wear the mask so you don't you know have a stroke um and so like I I I would uh, that was my mentality on it but even when the mask mandate started getting lifted even I was like is this okay like walking around I kind of feel weird and then one day I just walked into a store and completely forgot it and as I hit the front door I was like oh uh the sign says I'm allowed in and oh cuz I got vaccinated yay I'm okay so um I guess that's how it happens. People just make a mistake and enter uh, a business and uh, they realize, oh, I didn't have the mask with me. And that's how we get back to normal. That's the way forward. I don't know. Um, I hope so. So all of that is to get to this point here. My guest is, John Sanders, he is uh, with the John Locke Foundation, research editor and senior fellow uh, regulatory studies at the John Locke Foundation. More with him in a minute. First, celebrate spring with a free box spring at Mattress Man stores. Get it? Box spring, spring. Okay, you get a free box spring when you buy a mattress uh, that's part of the Biltmore Collection. And uh, this is the collection by Restonic, inspired by our very own local landmark. Mattress Man is an exclusive retailer of the Biltmore collection with its luxurious design and blend of old world craftsmanship and new world exclusive technology like edge to edge sleep surfaces and five support zones for, you know, correct spinal alignment, maximum adjustability. So you're getting optimal balance of pressure point relief and support. So what that means for you is you wake up and you, uh, you feel more restored. It's a healthier sleep, okay? Uh, and you don't even have to wait for this. They've got the inventory. Mattress Man has the inventory. You don't have to wait months and months like you do at a lot of these other places that, uh, you know, the pandemic just, you know, just did havoc on their supply and distribution systems. Not the case with Mattress Man. Synchrony Finance offers zero down, zero interest for up to 72 months for qualified applicants. They've got tons of other flexible financing options. So don't let, you know, less than stellar credit uh, dissuade you from going in because they've got lots of options. And then you get delivery, local, you know, five-star local delivery for free, um, nationwide shipping, 120-day comfort guarantee. And uh, it's just a win-win. You can go to any of their four stores in Asheville, Arden, or Hendersonville. Uh, You can also check out all the inventory and the deals on their website, mattressmanstores.com. That's mattressmanstores.com. Experience the difference at Mattress Man, buy local and sleep better. So John Sanders from the John Locke Foundation, uh, you've got a piece uh, that uh, talks about herd immunity. Now I'm old enough to remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was a lot of talk from a lot of people on the political right, I think, about herd immunity, the Swedish model. Right. Not like a, a Swedish right. model, not a person, but like uh, the in Sweden, they were like, we're going to get to herd immunity. And for some reason, this was something that people on the left never liked to talk about. Uh, the governor never mentioned it. I think I don't think he's ever mentioned it, actually, until maybe uh, like maybe the last news conference that he did. But I also see a lot of people who are anti-vaccine who are of the right, and now it's almost like they don't want to get the vaccine, and they're ignoring the herd immunity benefits. So let's back up to the very beginning and talk about herd immunity. What comprises that? In <laughs> it, it, Because the vaccines are part of it, but there's also a vital piece that's always been ignored. So... I will, I will leave you with that softball, big fat hanging softball for you to to smack away at.
1: Okay. So the herd immunity is the proportion of the population who are immune to a virus. Um, And that proportion can change according to what, whatever the, the ailment is, um, Fauci and and other experts have estimated that herd immunity for COVID is around 70%. So that's the number that that we have sort of been aiming at. Of course, whenever we get close to it, then they, maybe they'd want to change it because <laughs> as we've been talking about earlier, but
0: Yeah. Um I actually have heard so, that by the way. I have heard I think it was Fauci who said something like how he's been ratcheting up that percentage. In his, it, throughout, as we go along, because he knows he actually thinks it has to be somewhere around 80 or 90 percent. But, but he doesn't but he doesn't want to give too high of a goal.
1: <laughs> well, I think if you if you see North Carolina's cases, case numbers over the last two or three weeks, they've been dropping precipitously. Our our test percent positives have been dropping precipitously. Our, our hospitalizations have been under 700 for for the last several days. Uh, so we're seeing really good numbers. Very, um, very much in the last few weeks. But, okay, what are the two aspects of herd immunity? For So for a community to have active immunity, there are two different kinds, according to the CDC and according to what everybody knew before 2020 when we had to forget everything that we knew about <laughs> viruses. Um, you either had natural immunity, which means you contracted the infection and recovered from it. And now your body produces antibodies to it and, and knows to recognize it the next time you encounter it and fight it off. Or you have vaccine-induced immunity, which is to replicate natural immunity without you having to get so doggone sick. So those are the two kinds. But all we've been focusing on, all Governor Cooper has been focusing on with his, his we're not going to take the masks off school children until um, we get two-thirds of adults vaccinated – is we're missing the whole thing about natural immunity, and that's a big aspect of it.
0: Right. So there hasn't been a focus of it. As I mentioned earlier, I think the governor may have mentioned the term herd immunity once, and I think it was was one of the last of his two press conferences that he did, which, by the way, I've noticed he's not held another press conference ever since... He has to now hold them in person, <laughs> right? He's, he's For some reason, he's not interested in holding in-person news conferences. I wonder why. But um, no real focus by him. And look, there hasn't really been a focus by the media either on this. Um, they, they've acted a lot more like stenographers for him um, uh, w- when it comes to this, uh, uh, this immunity question. So uh, we also, the, North, the state of North Carolina also passed this million case mark. Now, you and I have talked about the what counts as a case, and so I've been kind of suspicious about this for a long time, um, but I almost wonder now, because of the cycle thresholds that they're running the PCR tests through that give us the million cases, um, it, do, do you think that they are actually confident that those million cases were actual cases? Because if you look at the million cases and say, oh, well, then all those people, uh, they've recovered. Most of them, all but what, twelve thousand, they've recovered, so they've got immunity too, right? I mean, isn't that the logical conclusion?
1: It is. Uh, there, <laughs> there are several things in that. Um, I want to take a a brief timeout on on the uh, the on this because you mentioned the PCR, mm-hmm. the the PCR testing and and the false positives problem. But did you see that for people who have been vaccinated that they put a limit? on how many cycle threshold, on the cycle threshold for the PCR tests um, for people who've been vaccinated because they keep getting <laughs> vaccinated people with false positives.
0: Well, of course they would. What is the, so wait, so what's the cycle threshold for them? I believe it's 28. Oh my It might God. be 25. Oh my God, it makes me want to murder somebody. Oh my God. So every new cycle, for, for your listeners, every cycle doubles the
1: amount of a protein that's, that's been detected. So, you know, 20, 25 to 26 is a doubling. And so for North Carolina, we've been using 37 to 40.
0: Yeah, which is like the highest end of the scale, which the experts say you should not be running these tests at that level, these, that many cycles, because the doubling that occurs at that at that level, it, it, you're you're finding wisps of you know remnants of of material that is probably not even the virus, and if it is, it doesn't mean you're infected with anything that's contagious. Uh, you could have had it along you know month ago, and it's just picking up some genetic material. But now, it, it, as to prove the point that we have been making for a year, they now dial that cycle threshold down, recognizing that people who have the vaccine are going to trip. Way, way positive.
1: <laughs> they're, right. they're, be, I mean, the viral... they're people aren't going to get the vaccine if people think it's not working. It's Again, it's the bad information problem from the government.
0: Right. Well, because they're so worried about, and it really does, like, I, I kind of joked about this throughout the pandemic and the way the governor and Mandy Cohen, the Health and Human Services Secretary, speak at these press conferences. And they talk to me like I'm a kindergartner. They talk to everybody, right? Like, their delivery is they treat us like children. And I find that to be insulting, and um, it, it, it's a turnoff. I, it, it's, I don't like listening to it. I don't appreciate it. And I almost wonder, though, if they really do view us as children, because, like, not just in the way they talk to us, but the way they kind of have to lie, right? They they have to say these things, because otherwise people won't do it, right? I mean, yeah. I, I guess, I mean, is that is that the motivation I don't know and I I can't ask you to opine on that but uh it's just it's one of these things that just drives me nuts is just the way they treat the public so the PCR tests the cycle threshold um picked up we were running them at 37 to 40 picks up a lot of this material trips a lot of these positive uh or uh, trips the tests as showing positive and that led to the case count numbers and of course that was the focus one of the metrics one of the main metrics that would keep the lockdowns in place and the and all of the other restrictions and the mandate, the mask mandate. So now um, I think we should look. I mean, if this is accurate data, do we look at the case counts and say all these people have recovered?
1: Well, that's been the basis for my threat free index all this <laughs> right. time Right is the assumption is after two weeks, um, you're in recovery. So you're you're immune and you will not be a threat to anybody to pass the virus along anymore so i was looking at the population um, and then i would just look at active cases which are people who have had it for fewer than two weeks and and make those comparisons so that's what i've been doing but the last two weeks the threat free index has hit 99.9 percent which is pretty much as high as it's going to get you know, I guess eventually it would round up to 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what is but, that 99? I mean,
0: yeah, what does that it mean? basically
1: means um, if you're around 1,000 people, uh, statistically, one of them could have COVID. But you know, <laughs> that doesn't mean they can actually pass it along to you. You have to be in close proximity to them for a prolonged period of time.
0: Indoors. Um, yeah, usually yeah, indoors. indoors. And, yep, sucking in the lung juice. Yep.
1: So, you know, I started this because you and I saw this. Everyone was just terrified to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And even if they were masked up, and, and I've seen people with two masks and a face <laughs> shield, and they still look at you as if as if they're going to catch a, a zombie virus and immediately <laughs> di- dissolve into, you know, mush or something. I, it's... it's you know, it's, it's easy sad, to make fun of, but it's very frustrating to see this being done to your fellow citizens. It's sad. And, and knowing how, how upset they are and they're walking around fearful like this. Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, I've, I kind of break people down now into people who are terrified of catching COVID and dying from it and people who are terrified of getting a vaccine. Like these are the two populations now that I find myself <laughs> arguing with most is like the people who are. Ter- but at the root of it is is terror. And thank you, media, right, for spinning up a lot of this fear in people they've been just absolutely horrible completely ill-equipped to uh to cover this story over the last year although i'm sure they're going to give themselves tons of awards uh when the award season uh rolls around so um what
1: compare compare how they how they've reacted with not just media but 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 the politicians Mm -hmm. i mean because what was unusual is how they've reacted to this normally when something comes out uh, a major crisis crops up they're trying to help tamp down people's anxieties and fears and say it's not as bad here's why you just need you know because most of the time they're as worried as we are about about our fellow citizens mm-hmm. this was so political from the start compare how everything was was handled with just just this recent gasoline shortage don't run out it's not you know you don't need to rush to to the tanks This will be over in just a couple of weeks, a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you don't need to do panic buying. It's okay. That's what we got from from our newspapers, our our print media, our TV media, uh, from our governor and from our president.
0: Right. That's why I ran out and bought all the gas. I bought so much (laughs) gas. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Filled up every plastic bag I had. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I told my office to um, that that this was coming, um, and and to to fill up before it got bad. Mm-hmm.
0: I guess what's one of, that would be one of the benefits of having you as a colleague. You you you're like the Cassandra. In the uh, in the cubicle, right? <laughs> <laughs> you alert all of the. Hey, you know what? You might want to th- go get some gas now.
1: Um, <laughs> on occasion, but I was I saw it on the way in, and, and I um, I have relatives who work in in oil and gas, and they had told me that night, it's like, look, it's about to get bad, North Carolina." Yeah. And then driving in, I thought, I'm going to top off, and the first place I pulled into was already out of gas. And oh so wow! I know. So yeah, it's, it's starting to get bad here. If you need gas.
0: All right, more with John in a minute. First, if you are a military veteran, active duty, or retiree, if you are a police officer, a firefighter, a healthcare professional, uh, an educator, and you are looking to buy or sell a home, would you like to keep some of your own money? Well, you can. It's the Homes for Heroes program. It's open to those five professions. And if you use a real estate agent that is uh, signed up with the Homes for Heroes program, then you keep 25% of the realtor commissions. Um, and Rowena Patton and her All-Star Powerhouse team, they're the Homes for Heroes realtors in Asheville. So keep more of your own money, buying or selling. Call the only agent that I called, Rowena Patton. Here's her number, 828-333-4483. That's 828-333-4483. The website is mountainhomehunt.com. That's Mountain homehunt.com. Go to the website or give her a call, tell her I sent you, and uh, then start packing. Uh, John Sanders is the uh, research editor and senior fellow of regulatory studies at the John Locke Foundation. So back to the the coronavirus uh, uh, fear-mongering. The CDC, I thought this was interesting. I had not seen this stat before. The CDC estimates that only one in 4.3 infections were actually reported, so uh, let's call it one in four. OK, I know you you mathed this thing all up, but um, you're so one in four. So 25 percent of all the universe of cases were actually diagnosed. So that means for every one case, there are three others that were out there. We don't know. So if you take that for uh, that stat, that data point, and you apply it to North Carolina, as you did in this piece, what do you find?
1: Yes. So that was a very fascinating piece because it it worked in i mean because what we were talking about with uh with what are the actual case numbers Mm -hmm. it worked at it from the other way around which is a lot of people remember when we were all all worried about asymptomatic people oh yes well this is worried this is talking about them a lot of people were asymptomatic they didn't even know they were sick or they had a mild case and they decided not to go to the doctor or they were afraid of going to the doctor, so they decided to you know, write it out. Uh, this tries to account for all this, um, all of these people that weren't captured in the official data. And so what they came up with was one out of every 4.3 cases if I applied that to North to North Carolina and today was a good day to do that because a million times four point three is a lot easier to do <laughs> than eight hundred and ninety six. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. So for so you so a million cases, we passed the million case count threshold in North Carolina. And that means we had four point three million infections. Right.
1: So, you know, not to. To bore everyone with all of the math.
0: Yeah, please don't.
1: But I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, including me. I yeah, no, it's radio. Yeah, yeah,
0: it would be death. Yeah. It's death, all the numbers and stuff. But the, so the, yeah, the bottom line is what?
1: The bottom line is when you add the percentage of known vaccinations, which we have from the, the Department of Health and Human Services, they keep that up, which is 53% today. And you look at the adults who, have natural immunity, and you take out the ones who have been vaccinated. You get 1.6. I mean, 16.5 percent. Excuse me. See, I already messed it up.
0: Yeah. See, man. 16.5 uh,
1: percent. You add that plus the 53 percent, and you get 69 and a half percent of people with active immunity in North Carolina. So, so that's Co- a great number. That's past Cooper's two-thirds, and this is just the adults. So Cooper did Cooper's know that we two-thirds. passed.
0: Cooper did know. He knew that we got to the two-thirds. That's why he... I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but yeah, so this is, but you're adding in, essentially, you're you're adding in people with the natural immunity and people that got vaccinated.
1: Yes. So my estimates are that we are pretty much at 70%. And that's great news. I think that's bigger than getting to a million cases. I think that's I think that explains why we're seeing such a dramatic drop off. I mean, even if we haven't technically reached it, um, we're we're days away from it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it makes sense, logically speaking, when you look at all of the uh, the plummeting numbers. Um, and I know people like when you look at Texas and Florida and they lifted their mandates and they were called Neanderthals and people like, oh, you're going to kill everybody. And then it didn't happen. The case counts get, just kept dropping is because I, I, I don't know if I taking the masks off, you know, killed the virus. No, I think just like you said, I think they that enough people have already gotten it and are getting vaccinated that I mean, honestly, the most vulnerable populations, they were the first in line to get the vaccines. So. It makes sense that we would see the most vulnerable people being spared from the worst effects of the virus, so those numbers would decline. It, it, and this goes to the very beginning of the pandemic, when, when we were screaming about, you know, focus on the most vulnerable, quarantine the people that are most at risk, those who are sick, but let everybody else go about their lives, because it's not, um, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, basically. it's it, It's not, you're doing more harm than good.
1: Right. That's what we did differently this year than or this past year than we have in any other time. I mean, we've never before quarantined the healthy and forced the healthy to wear face masks.
0: Yeah. Um, You write in your piece about 70% of adults in North Carolina with active immunity from COVID. It's obviously past Cooper's two-thirds standard. More importantly, it would be in line with the estimates for uh, the herd immunity to achieve herd immunity. In short, We're very likely there, Um, and if not right now, we will be soon. It also means you say there's absolutely no rationale to keep the state of emergency going. Um, And so I guess I need to ask you, are you surprised? I know the answer to this. You're not surprised that Cooper is maintaining the Declaration of Emergency and his executive orders. They're still, in fact, implemented, right?
1: Yes, they are still implemented, um, and I he he simply absolutely needs to get rid of it um since since we can't seem to get a political solution to it um that we can't uh we can't have this challenged in court for whatever reason um i mean there is a lawsuit so hopefully that will that yeah. will succeed um but th- we are in in no sense of the word emergency under a state of emergency the only thing keeping the nor- keeping the state state emergency is it's keeping cooper's power installed and he keeps talking about the dimmer switch approach so i worry that he will use any kind of wobble or any any thin rationale to suddenly you know lock
0: us all down again i don't know
1: well so in trying to decide no reason for the kids to be wearing face masks
0: right this yeah and so like this is the thing i don't understand is is what's the play? What's the purpose? Why would he continue to do this? What is the rationale? Is it because he doesn't want to be seen as lifting everything too quickly because then it may sort of um, give away the game that he could have done this much earlier? Um, Is that it? Or is there some sort of a power dynamic going on where uh, this this is leverage that he has over Republicans in the legislature through the budget fight. like I'm trying to figure out what exactly you're using. He's using this for at this point, because, as you mentioned, this is not a we're not in an emergency any longer. It would be like saying, well, I need to keep this declaration of emergency operable because, you know, you never know. There could be a bad flu season someday and I might need to do something. That's the rationale.
1: Here's what here's here's the reasons he gives on his frequently asked questions about it. One, it's necessary to maintain the state's ability to receive federal funding funding to meet challenges presented by COVID. All right, so money. Mm -hmm. Two, it lets uh, DHHS and hospitals get increased regulatory flexibility is a long paragraph. I can't read it all, but basically money. Mm. Three, it's the exact same reason verbatim he gave for one. I don't know why he's got it written twice, but okay, (laughs) money. Four,
0: sensing it creates a, a pathway
1: for continuing face covering requirements in certain high-risk soap power. Mm-hmm. And then five, five is the one that really drives me at the wall. The state of emergency allows the state to be ready in case there is a spike in the disease among the non-vaccinated population. So we have a state of emergency in place in case there's an emergency someday. Right. <laughs> <Wait. laughs> And the
0: money. Don't forget the money.
1: <laughs> yeah, that one's power. So, two of them are money, and two of them are power. But none of them refer to a real state of emergency anymore. Right. And and if you have to give, you know, four and a half bullet points to explain yourself, I think you're making a point that no, we're not under a state of emergency, and I'm trying to cover myself.
0: Yeah, I think so. I understand the federal uh, money component, uh, not that I necessarily agree with it, but I understand it. Uh, and that's just kind of the, the way that that system works where you have to declare the state of emergency and then that opens up the federal you know, spigot. I, I get it. Um, but you don't need the mask mandate still for the kids. You don't you, you don't need to be uh, you don't need to have all of that other stuff. Just lift everything. If you want to keep the declaration in play until the feds declare COVID no longer an emergency. Okay. But I mean, for the money, (laughs) like, again, like I understand that argument, but I, I, I may not agree with it, but I understand it. I don't understand the argument with the kids. Like that, that, that to me, uh, is that, is that some sort of, uh, I don't know, a, a, a give to the, teachers unions i can't even say that i mean i can't even see that let alone say it so i can't even see why why is that why is this necessary what is the science behind masking the kids at this point when you've got the case counts falling off the cliff you've got vaccination levels up around 70 percent i don't get it
1: i'll tell you the science behind masking kids the science is take the masks off the kids <laughs> i mean <I> as mean, simple <laughs> as that
0: that's right, that's what this is like
1: they're the least affected by this they're the least likely to spread they're the least likely to suffer any adverse health effects um whereas they're suffering all kinds of health um adverse effects from being forced to wear masks all day mm-hmm. you know, kids cannot be sophisticated enough to the proper handling of masks. So they're also more likely to be basically wearing face Petri dishes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, yeah, the runny nose, the snotty noses and stuff. Yeah. I'm uh, just, I'm sure that's, that's really, that's really healthy to have that just sitting up in front of your face all day, just inhaling it. Uh, Although on the bright side, this really has been uh, this really has been quite the year for ugly people. I will say they've really. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's terrible. I shouldn't say that. Uh, all right. So, is there anything else here that you want to add that we haven't covered that you think is important or interesting to note before I let you go?
1: Well, I've been like the Statue of Liberty, wanting to see you know our huddled masses yearning to breathe free. <laughs> so I was glad with, that we finally were allowed to lift all of our. Are, are restrictions against people getting together, maybe enjoying a Hurricanes game and not wearing masks. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. But I think that the state of emergency needs to go. I think especially the, the mistreatment of, of school children and children going off to camp and being outside needs to go. And I, I think it needs to go right away.
0: John Sanders, Research Editor and Senior Fellow of Regulatory Studies at the John Locke Foundation. You can read his work at johnlocke.org. As always, John, appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Pete. It was fun as always. All right. Now, if you don't enjoy mowing the yard, and honestly, I think there are very few human beings that enjoy mowing a yard, I've got the solution. It's an auto mower. It looks like the Batmobile, and I don't know, it's like two feet long by about a foot wide, and it just rides around your yard, and it just cuts the grass all the time. And it has a little docking station. It's like a Roomba, but for your yard. And you map the yard with this uh, app that comes with it. Uh, So you can actually check in on your mower. You can actually monitor it during the day. (laughs) And this is pretty cool. If anybody ever tries to steal it, it turns into basically a paperweight because uh, it just it shuts itself down and then the GPS locator goes off and so cops know exactly where the thief is with it. So uh, it's built-in security. And here's the deal, right? As you get older, and I'm now, I'm on my way to getting older, I think. I mean, like, my plan is to live forever. So far, so good. But um, the, the idea that I want to be out mowing the yard in like, you know, 95 degree weather uh, this summer, I, I, it's not attractive to me. So... The auto mower takes care of that. It mows the yard for me. I don't ever have to do it again. And it mows it like perfectly. So it's always at the right height constantly. It's always looking good. All right. So where do you get one of these? You get it at General Equipment Rental. It's the Husqvarna Automower. Go check it out at their website, GeneralRents.com. That's GeneralRents.com. General Equipment Rental. They've got all sorts of outdoor power equipment uh, that you need to, you know, uh, keep your house looking good. All the the landscaping and yard work. Uh, they also have uh, obviously large equipment and machinery for any project, residential or commercial. You can rent the tool or the equipment that you need from General Equipment Rental and, uh, you know, return it when you're done. One project should not require you to buy a really expensive piece of machinery. Go to General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. They're at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. Family owned and operated for three generations. Tell them I sent you. General Equipment Rental, GeneralRents.com, and think outside your toolbox. All right, shifting gears now, an update on the tenure. Uh, Debate for uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, a proposal, according to The Washington Post, a proposal to award academic tenure to uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones has reached the Board of Trustees at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. A a sign of growing pressure on the board to resolve a controversy over the terms of her employment as she prepares to join the faculty. Hannah Jones, a writer for The New York Times, won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary last year for her erroneous and stealth edited essay. Okay, I threw in those descriptors, but that's the truth. Uh, It was erroneous, and they stealth edited it. Anyway, uh, this was the the, uh, commentary essay as part of the 1619 Project on the role of slavery in American history. She also won a MacArthur Genius Grant, which basically just is free money to people that are of a preferred political uh, ideology. And she also holds a master's degree in journalism from UNC. This is her alma mater, I believe. So the university announced in April that she would join its Hussman School of Journalism and Media in the summer as a professor with a special title, the Night Chair in Race and Investigative Journalism. If you want details on the beginning of this saga, you can find the earlier podcast. That I did about a week ago. So uh, last week, the journalism school dean, Susan King, disclosed that unlike previous night chairs at UNC, Hannah Jones was hired without the job protecting designation of tenure. Her contract has a five year term with a possibility of tenure review within that time. Tenure gives faculty a substantial amount of freedom to speak, research, and publish on topics of their choosing without fear that it's going to cost them their jobs. UNC had about 622 tenured full professors in 2019. Of them, eight were black women. Eight out of 622 full-time tenured professors in the entire UNC system. And so that tells me they all need to resign because anti-racism, critical race theory that Hannah uh, or uh, Nicole Hannah Jones uh, promotes, the, the proof of racism is in the disparate outcomes. Okay, so if you have and this is a disparate outcome, right, you've got 622 positions and only eight of them are black women. And so that is not proportionate to their population in the general public, in the general population. So whatever that is. So blacks make up, I think. Uh, What 12 percent of the population or something like that. Uh, So black women, I assume, would be half of that. So there needs to be a comparable percentage reflected in the tenured positions. And if there isn't, that's de facto proof of racism. And then you need to enact some discriminatory policies in order to make that proportionate. OK, so this is why discrimination is part of critical race theory. It's one of the, quote, solutions that you use to get at uh, a, a proportionate, equitable outcome. OK, so I simply suggested on the Twitter machine the other day that, you know what, maybe uh, all of the white people uh, who are tenured professors need to resign and then UNC needs to hire uh, you know, uh, non-white people—they need to discriminate against whites in order to balance this in an equitable fashion. And I'm not going to get into the minutia of how many people they need to balance it out because, I mean, you could make the argument that there's uh, yes, 600 plus you know people and tenured positions, but I mean, how do you really atone for centuries of oppression? And so. I would think maybe you just give every position to non-white people. Just discriminate across the board. No whites are allowed uh, to teach in their tenured gigs. And I think that would really go a long way to healing. So I encourage all of the white tenured professors to resign their their uh, their posts for equity, for equity's sake. Right. See, I'm all about solutions. Um, it also emerged last week that a trustee named Charles Duckett or Chuck Duckett, Duckett, Chuck Duckett, uh, had raised questions to the university senior leadership about this tenure proposal several months ago. And that's what postponed the matter. The proposal, according to the board chair, Richard Stevens, did not come to the board for a vote. So it's not like she was denied tenure. She got a contract because this guy, Duckett, had asked some questions about her experience in the classroom, which she doesn't have any. And so they asked her, uh, he was asking about this, he didn't get any answers, and so they just didn't it didn't come up for a vote um faculty students and others accused the trustees of playing politics with the proposal suggesting that conservative forces opposed to the views of history <laughs> this is always the accusation on critical race theory anti-racism garbage this marxist philosophy uh, it's always the charge right you don't want to teach real history it's not actually true uh despite the uh you know, the repetition that they use to enforce this narrative, it is not accurate. It's not accurate. Kind of like uh, Hannah jones's uh commentary piece that one of the posts are not accurate um so this is the animating argument from the left on this which is that she was denied this tenure position which she wasn't but she was denied this position because conservatives hate her work because they're trying to deny slavery and racism ever existed stevens has said uh that is by the way the, uh, the board chair. Stevens has said that the board did not deny tenure to Hannah-Jones and that it is not uncommon for the board to raise questions about candidates that, go, that do not come from a traditional academic type background. Uh, so now we go over to the Charlotte Observer. And uh, their report yesterday, tenure for Nicole Hannah-Jones at UNC Chapel Hill, it's officially back up for consideration. It's in the hands of the university's board of trustees. This does not guarantee that there will be a vote, and it's unclear when the board may take up the issue. The next official board meeting isn't scheduled until mid-July, and she's going to have already started her job by then, which is, I've I've seen a report, and I don't have it in front of me uh, at the moment, but if I recall correctly, the uh, the salary is $180,000 a year. 180 <laughs> k to be a tenured or non-tenured five-year contract. Think about it. She's going to make more than half a million dollars. And this is oppression. I'm supposed to believe she's being oppressed <laughs> by getting the job. I don't think oppression looks like you getting the job. Um, many think, this is the Observer story again, many think, so that's how uh, that, that's how they have uh, a launder reporter opinion. Right. That's how they that's how they back into it. They launder this reporter's opinion. This is Kate Murphy. Uh, she's laundering this idea through the many think or some people say that's that's how you get there. Many think political concerns may have played a role into the lack of tenure for Hannah Jones. But UNC officials say the issue never came before the full university trustee board. After Chuck Duckett, who chairs the board's University Affairs Committee, asked to postpone it because of questions he had. He told the News and Observer that he had questions related to her experience in the classroom, among others, and that nobody answered him. The board never voted then on the matter for tenure. Hannah Jones signed the contract for a fixed-term faculty position without tenure that was sent on March 2nd. He said he has asked multiple times in the past for a postponement for a tenure candidate when he had questions about that person's candidacy. And in each case, the matter came up at a later time, and the candidate got granted tenure. Like, people are—this is the thing that gets me. They're they're saying—well, here, let me— Let me skip ahead to the end of this piece and I'll I'll get there in a minute. Hundreds of professional athletes, scholars, artists, political activists and professional journalists have criticized the board's decision or lack thereof and defended Hannah Jones and her work, particularly on the 1619 project, which, by the way, that is really the only uh, point of contention that I'm seeing people have. with her it's this it's the commentary piece that she wrote and won a pulitzer for that had errors in it that was then stealth edited after the fact that's the main concern as i've seen it and then she's proceeded to gaslight people who have uh, criticized or disagreed with the fundamental assertion that 1619 should be the real founding of america not 1776 and cuz now she denies she said it she says she never wrote that, but she did. She's written it repeatedly, actually. The, um, oh, then there was also the 1619 alumni, 1,619 alumni and current students took out a two-page spread advertisement in the News and Observer that was published on Wednesday demanding that the board reconsider tenure for Hannah Jones. Okay, first off, the board did not consider it in the first place. Hasn't consider- So there is no reconsideration that needs to occur, first of all. Second of all, you're not demanding that the board reconsider it you're demanding that the board do it that's different that is a different demand right you're saying she deserves it and you make no argument here as to address the uh, the opposition for why she shouldn't right there, there, there's not, you notice there's not even a debate here that's occurring about whether or not somebody gets to behave like she behaves and get this tenured post. Nobody's having that discussion. All it is is, well, you know, she's really great. She's got these awards, and uh, you should give it to her because of her race and gender. Assigned at birth, I assume, or I I don't even know. But her race and gender, right? Because she's a black woman, and she's got the Pulitzer, and she got that genius uh, uh, grant, the genius award, you got to give her the tenure. And that's enough for them. That's enough. In a tweet... This week, Hannah Jones expressed thanks for the support that she has received, and um, she said, quote, I am grateful for and overwhelmed by everybody who signed this letter and the News and Observer ad. Uh, The fight is not about me. We call on all people of conscience to decry the growing wave of repression and to encourage a recommitment to the free exchange of ideas, which is an interesting line of approach here because she actually does not seem to want to engage in a free exchange of ideas. She... Remember, I went over this last week. Uh, she attempted to shut down criticism by Brett Stevens in the New York Times, and she was railing against Brett Stevens. Right? She was. Uh, she she does not address critics honestly. Right. So the reason why I'm going to throw a couple of uh, explanations out here. This is the reason why maybe people have a bit of a problem with giving her lifetime tenure. Okay. First off, could be her shoddy work. On the project itself in that essay, it could be her dishonesty and it could be her racism. Any of those three, I'm going to get to them in a minute. First, you need to get down to Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde. It's across the street uh, from the anti-aircraft gun. Uh, He's got all sorts of real U.S. military surplus items like camp stoves. Uh, He can put together a first aid kit for you, which is a necessity. This is required. Uh, If you are an outdoorsy type backpacker or a camper, hiker, whatever, you need to have first aid kits uh, in your bags. Um, Backpacks as well, ammo cans, which are great for storage, all sorts of sizes. He's got gun accessories as well. Head on over to Old Grouch's Military Surplus, downtown Clyde on Main Street. Shop is open Monday through Saturday and 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. So uh, it could be her shoddy work that's prompted people to oppose her tenureship. Leslie Harris, a Northwestern University historian who helped fact check the 1619 Project, said, far from being fought to preserve slavery, the Revolutionary War became a primary disruptor of slavery in the North American colonies. And then she explains how. And she said, despite this record and my advice, the Times published the incorrect statement about the American Revolution anyway anyway. Uh, as part of Hannah Jones's introductory essay. It could also be Jones's um, dishonesty. Uh, The story isn't really complicated, except for the fact that she's the center of it, Um, but she's been doing her best to gaslight everybody. If you cut through the intentional fog of misdirection... um, you find out like she is trying to deny that she said anything to the effect of that 1619 is the true founding of America and not 1776 and this is incorrect for a number of reasons as John Sexton at hotair.com points out um and now she claims Hannah Jones is pretending like she never said anything so that's dishonesty in the face of criticism or maybe it could be her racism back in 95 uh, she wrote a letter to the school paper at Notre Dame calling uh, white uh, white people, uh, the white race is the biggest murderer, rapist, pillager and thief of the modern world. The white's lasting monument was the destruction and enslavement of two races of people. And uh, she calls us devils and likens uh, Columbus to Hitler. So there's that. Uh, maybe just spitball in there. That's a wrap for the episode. Thanks for listening. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. Talk with you later and don't break anything while I'm gone.